Hi, welcome to the Holes of Remarks show, and today I am talking to Ronald Murphy. And how how are you today, sir? I am doing very, very well. I'm very flattered and honored to be on your show. I've been looking forward to talking with you. So, uh, so yeah, I, I can't say uh, can't say more. I'm I'm pleased to be a guest. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, Ronald? Sure, I can tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania uh, at the at the foot of the Chestnut Ridge. Now, for those folks listening to the show who might not know about this, um, this piece of land is about a 170-mile offshoot of the Appalachian Plateau. So it's a ridgeline, not a very big ridge, maybe 3,000 feet at its, height, uh, at its highest point. But um, it runs through parts of Western Pennsylvania down until uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, where it terminates. But it's been called, since the 1970s, the Twilight Zone of Pennsylvania, because a lot of very weird things occur on the Chestnut Ridge. Now, whenever I was a kid, uh, back in the 1970s, I grew up in a small town called Blairsville, and it only had one streetlight, the quintessential kind of Norman Rockwell Americana that I think most people envision, you know, uh, very, very, very um, small town, everybody knew everybody's name, but it wasn't known for much, and it was a very boring place. You know, as a kid, it was a great place, but, you know, it was a very boring, sedate, very stoic little town until the winter of 1977, and then Bigfoot was being sighted right outside our town, and news crews from Pittsburgh, which is the nearest city to where, where I lived, would start coming up and filming, and what would happen is my mother would watch these reports or listen to the reports on the radio, and then she would take my brother and I out the next day, and we would go on an expedition looking for the big hairy guy. Um, you know, we would go all over the backwoods of the Chestnut Ridge looking for this, and I'm 49 now, so I've been doing it for, you know, about 42 years, my love for Bigfoot and, and things that go bump in the night. Uh, but the Chestnut Ridge is also known for a lot of UFO activity. Now, I'm not a specialist whenever it comes to UFOs. I'm more of a cryptid guy. Uh, but in 1965, there was a famous Kecksburg incident where a space well, whatever it was, was seen coming across Canada and seemed to make a, a pretty sharp turn over the Great Lakes and head in towards Pennsylvania where something was said to have crashed in um, a remote section right off the Chestnut Ridge called Kecksburg. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of like Pennsylvania's version of Roswell. But yeah, a lot of strange things. Um, and that really was the genesis for the person that I am right now because, you know, looking for Bigfoot as a kid was a great thing to do and it, it really broadened my horizon and it kept my mind open, you know, both for imagination and both from a very scientific point of view as well, too. I mean, I went off to the university and I, and I studied um, literature and in graduate school, I studied history. But as I was studying the works of, you know, these great works like, um, you know, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, or when I was looking at the great works of the Vikings like um, Beowulf, you would start encounter these creatures that seemed to resemble what we would call Bigfoot. And in history, even, you know, you would start seeing these encounters with these hairy wild men. Um, and it was a very fascinating thing to try to synthesize uh, what I grew up looking for as a child uh, to what is going on in the world. 
world today. So I think it's a it's a very interesting thing, and, and I approach uh, the world of the paranormal by looking for archetypes. I try to go back as far as I can in history, find some sort of origin for these stories, and really figure out what the validity may be of things like Bigfoot and werewolves and mermaids existing, you know, up into recent history. I'm a great believer that every myth and legend or even urban tale has got a, a element of truth somewhere in it. I, I agree 100%. And, and if you look at the, at, at the historical record, and I'm not talking about just works of, you know, what we would call fantasy, like the Epic of Gilgamesh or like Beowulf or, you know, these countless other tales. But if you would also look at true history, if we would look at the father of history, Herodotus, you know, he spoke of these, you know, these heroes from the Iliad and the Odyssey, Ajax being 14 foot tall, you know, uh, there was something going on here. The idea of the heroic or the idea of the Superman was this very tall, human-like you know, bipedal creature, you know, whether it was a complete, you know, you know, was a man or it was something more closer to a monster, you know, the jury's still out on that. We can debate that at length, but the idea that there were superhuman type of creatures out there at the same time as regular human beings is really something that is embedded in the cultural memory of, of races around the world. Because yeah, you know a friend of mine, Deborah Hatswell. Uh, I do, I do. We actually have a show on together on the Paranormal UK Radio Network called The Crypto Realm. So yes, I do know her well. And obviously, you you know the involvement with British Bigfoot. Absolutely. I've been fascinated by the British Bigfoot uh, ever since I was in graduate school. And back in 1999, I actually was on what you would call a woodwoos hunt over there in the, in the British Isles looking for this creature uh, and the gray man up in uh, the Scottish Highlands. Yeah, so what are we supposed to do with these kind of, you know, fables or these kind of legends, you know, from not only England, but also the continental Europe and, you know, every continent around the world except Antarctica. I mean, even Australia has the Yowie. So we're talking about something that's deeply embedded in the human, you know, collective unconscious. Now, is that something only wired in the gray matter of the mind? Or is could it be that we as a human race had experienced these creatures, possibly even evolved with these creatures, and remnants of these types of creatures existed up into historical times, and there's possibly some existing this very day in the shadowy areas of the world? Because yeah, uh, there's loads of places in the world they could still hide and not be found. I mean, you look at uh, the tribes in Amazon forests that they discover that they had never seen before. It often comes right. in the news. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I mean, to, to think, well, see, that's what we are as human beings. We're, we're, we're a species full of hubris, and we like to categorize things and catalog things and pin things down and put them under microscopes. Now, when we do that, we have power over these things. The world is our, our command. You know, we name it, we own it. Now, science is also very uneasy whenever it comes to things that may be out there that they might not completely understand. But absolutely, you know, human beings, 
have been able to stay hidden up until the modern era. Um, and, you know, these, these lost tribes, as they call them, you know, with very little, if any, European contact whatsoever or, or colonized contact whatsoever have been existing in rainforests um, for, you know, millennia. If this is possible, then why could not a self-aware, elusive creature like a Bigfoot or the Wild Man or the Wood Woos or whatever, you know, whatever name he goes by, why couldn't pockets of these creatures remain as well? Well, that's what I honestly believe. I, I think the trouble is we, look, we, we think in the modern world that nothing can, nothing can be hidden, nothing can, not, everything's available and... <laughs> down we are the the owners of this world you know we've staked our claim we are the apex species but if we would look at the world and really you know glance at it for instance the first book that i've ever written on the idea of the cryptid uh the idea of the collective unconscious these archetypal characters was a book called on mermaids which was a historical survey of the idea of mermaid creatures from around the world now when we look at the earth you know it really shouldn't be called the earth it should be called the water because you know 75 percent of this this planet is covered in water um so when we look at the earth there's a lot of places to hide especially if you're an aquatic animal uh, now when we talk about these 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 woodland type of creatures these sylvian creatures um we think that we've conquered everything but even places like England, my goodness, I remember the first time I went to England and I could just remember how wooded and how desolate many areas are, especially the farther north you go. I mean, whenever you go into Scotland, um, my, uh, my, uh, my middle son, his name is Sterling, because I absolutely fell in love with Sterling up there in the Midlands and, you know, the whole William Wallace thing. But so I, I named him Sterling. But if you go to Sterling, it's a, you have a, a walled city there with a castle you have a, a great university, and, you know, a stone's throw from this is woods and, you know, and, and these, these, these rolling hills that lead into mountains. So even places like Great Britain are very wild places. Same way with the United States. You know, I know a lot of your listeners are probably UK, and a lot of the listeners are from the United States as well. But I, I, I want to really hammer that point home. When we think about the United States, it still has a heck of a lot of undiscovered areas, a lot of unpopulated areas. Um, whenever you think of places like Boston, you know, um, eight hours from Boston, uh, we have goes right up into Maine. Uh, Maine is a very, very large state, but it's the least populated state east of the Mississippi River. And I spent a lot of time in Maine as a researcher, and I can tell you truly that it. If you wanted to stay hidden, Maine would be one of the ideal places to go. And there's also these ridges and these interconnections of these mountain ranges uh, around the United States as well. Whenever I spoke at the very outside of the show about the Chestnut Ridge, you know, if you were a creature that was a migratory creature and you wanted to go unseen, the best place to do is to cling to these ridge tops where nobody goes, you know, very rocky, very un unwelcoming type of terrain. But if they are indeed using this as a sort of, you know, highway to get from place to place, this is the ideal territory for that to be. 
and obviously they must be a very highly intelligent creature able to communicate and um, develop skills of how to um, live like that and also people always come back with the theories oh well we never see any kids we never see any bones we never see this but they, the, the trouble is that they're looking for like you say a, an ape-like creature but if it's human in elements as well we may be that's going right. right past it without even realizing it yeah, that's right um, a couple things let's point out, and I think that's a very valid argument to, to, to undertake at this, uh, this juncture. Um, I'm an educator as well, too, and uh, I'm very uh, focused on the natural sciences as a way to educate young folks. So um, I came across uh, back in the, uh, in, the, in the fall, I came across um, a dead deer. I, I might have been killed by poachers or possibly hit by a car, but it was pretty deep in the woods. And I remembered where it was going to be because it was still, you know, it was still flesh and bone. It was still flesh and muscle and everything. And I thought, you know, I will wait for a while and come back and revisit uh, during um, the, the, the height of the spring. Um, whenever I came back to it in spring, uh, very little of this animal was left. Uh, and it just goes to show how quickly nature reclaims its own. Now, I doubt very highly that if there's a Bigfoot creature that's going to die like a deer would die, you know, so close to walking trails and everything. But even if it did, uh, animals have a way of taking, you know, the bones and scattering them about. Um, and also, there might be the possibility that these creatures can recognize uh, that there is something happening with the deceased, you know, like the Neanderthal, and possibly may even bury the bones. Now, that might be giving too much credence if these animals do exist in the corporeal world. But if, 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 they, if, they, if they do not have this kind of um, understanding of the way everything works um as i said nature has a way of you know taking care of itself and disposing of uh, any kind of uh of remains very very quickly puts it like an uh, elephant puts it like they like have an elephant graveyard you know like the elephants go to certain places when they die oh absolutely that's the that is the thing okay i live in um you know, in, in a very wooded area. Right now, as I'm doing the show, I'm looking out the uh, the, the window right into the woods. Um, I know that there are bear around here. I've never encountered a bear, if you can believe it, and nor have I ever found any remains. I found a track one time, but that was about it. But I know that there are bear out there. Uh, you know, very rarely do I see turkey, but I find their footprints all the time, and I hear their calls, and I know that they're out there. Now, it's, now, there is one point though that I do want to make about the remains. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s here in the United States, there was a upswell of uh, finding bones of giants. Uh, they usually were found in and around uh, ancient burial mounds, Indian burial mounds. Uh, there was one uncovered not very far from where I'm doing this show right now in a place called Greensburg, Pennsylvania. But a lot of these were found along the Mississippi River. Um, I have studied uh, Indian 
Indian burial mounds extensively. Um, they're, they're, you know, these, these some of them are, are ideal works of art. When we go to a place like Cahokia in Carbondale, Illinois, um, there's a, a feature there called Monk's Mound, which is an artificial pyramid in, in effect, and it has a larger base than uh, the Great Pyramid of uh, Cheops. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, these great vast mound building cultures, but what would happen is every now and then a farmer would go out there and think of nothing about plowing over one of these mounds because it was in his way and they would expose bones and sometimes these bones were of giants. You know, we're sometimes talking, you know, 10, 12, even 14 to 16 foot bones uh, have been uh, reported. Now, it was astounding because uh, I, I would find in the archives uh, the front page headlines um, Giant's Bones Found in Farmer's Field. And the next day, somebody from a university came in, studied the bones, and they contacted inevitably the Smithsonian Institute. Um, there was a lot of hubbub in the paper. You can imagine a small town. The Smithsonian was coming in, and nothing was ever mentioned again about the site. So apparently the Smithsonian came in, took these bones, and took them away. Now, a lot of people were saying this was, you know, tabloid journalism at the time, a way to sell stories. Maybe it happened once or twice, but this was part of the newspaper culture for quite a period of time. And there were sometimes even photographs taken as well. Again, some of them may indeed have been piggyback rides off of very real stories. But we, again, have to think, you know, was there a point where a lot of these stories were indeed based in fact? And I do believe that they were. Now, were these giant bones giant Native Americans, or could they possibly have been the remains of a Bigfoot creature that were taken away? So to say that we do not have any remains might mean that, you know, remains have been found, but they have been whisked away for whatever reason, you know, and a period of disinformation follows. I blame it. Well, all governments are very good at covering up. That's right, they are. They are. Uh, our government, unfortunately, uh, seems to be uh, uh, quite professional. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I don't know. See, now, whenever we talk about uh, the difference between England and, and America, uh, you know, because we have uh, this indigenous uh, culture here, now, with the, uh, with the uh, indigenous population that was in England at the time of the Romans, I mean, were there, did you have stories of giants? I guess if you were looking at the legends of of, um, of uh, Merlin and, and such, you know, the idea of him employing giants to create Stonehenge and things. So you do have that notion there, don't you? Well, yeah, uh, the, the giants are everywhere. I mean, if you look it up, there's, there's quite a lot of giants in English mythology. I mean, I couldn't name them off, off, off by heart at the moment, obviously, but... but. That's right. I, I was just putting you to the test to see if you could. No, but I, I know what you're talking about. Like, even Jack and the Beanstalk, when we think about these kind of things, the idea of the giant is with us, and the idea of the wild man has been with us since the dawn of humanity. Um, and what do you do about it? I mean, as a scholar and as somebody that has a passion for not only history, but also the idea of the cryptid and the paranormal, you know, it's really kind of my job to try to synthesize these things and make sense of it. Um, and, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I'm left with more questions than, answered, uh, than answers. But, you know, I really enjoyed the heck out of this stuff. Now, I heard some time ago of an American 
version of Stonehenge. But when I looked it up, there's two versions. There's the version where they, they found rocks near an Indian site. And the other version is where somebody built, deliberately built a Stonehenge-like structure. It's like a bit, like a bit of artwork. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm, I'm sorry. Now, what, what was the site again that you're, you're mentioning? The American Stonehenge. There's two. The two of them. Look, I look okay. Yeah. I I have been to something called Mystery Hill, um, and it was at one time called American so- America Stonehenge, and that's up in a place called Derry, New Hampshire. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes, that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, I, I was just speaking to somebody about this about a month ago. Um, I've been to Loch Ness, and I, you know, I, I've been to a, a lot of different places. But the place that I've got the creeps uh, more than any place has been America's Stonehenge. It's one of those spots that, for some reason, there seems to be some sort of energy attached to it. Um, and it really just gave me what my grandmother would say, what she used to call it the willies, this, this feeling of, of, of dread and that, you know, you weren't wanted there. It's quite a large site. There's a lot of stones uh, aligned to the solstice and the equinoxes, but then again, there's a lot of stones there, so I guess you could pick which ones you want to line up. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of odd place configurations to the point that you think that this probably was not done by accident. It does not look to me as if it were created by um, uh, colonists, uh, you know, early colonial Americans making, you know, anything from cider uh, crushers and stuff, which a lot of people have said, you know, processing meal. Um, it doesn't appear that way to me. It looks like it was created for a purpose that we have not quite figured out. Maybe something even ceremonial, but um, I would urge any of, any of your listeners or hopefully my friend, something you would be able to get over here as well. So it is a very, very weird spot. And uh, again, of all the sites that I've visited, that is the one that still sticks with me and can still make me uh, lay awake at night with one eye open. For some reason, it just puts off this, you know, overwhelming feeling that, uh, you know, you're violating or trespassing the area whenever you go there. Perhaps it's to do with our ancient man brain that we realize we, we know it's of a religious significance of some sort. See, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you were fading in and out there, my friend. I'm sorry, I, I just caught the very first part of that sentence. Uh, I should say, I, I just repeat it again. Perhaps it's to do with our ancient man brain. It's like, it's still within us, like we still realise it as a, of a religious significance to us. Yeah, you know, and again, because I, I am this, you know, I'm, I'm very Jungian. I, I, I really believe that Carl Jung was on to something whenever he was talking about the idea of the collective unconscious. And whenever you go even more into the, the writings of Joseph Campbell and we talk about, you know, the sacred, I think we are dealing with that here. And I think that the human mind does grasp when there is something out of the uh, out of the usual going on. Now, is it possible that these sacred sites like America's Stonehenge or Stonehenge itself um, is built upon ley lines or, or natural parts of the earth, the, this, or this earth grid that has power sources attached? I think, indeed, it could possibly be that. And this power kind of surges to the surface, and it can affect our 
chemistry and our and our thought patterns. I think that's very very plausible. Um, but I do think that it has something to go with the ancient man brain, and I, I like the way you put that. Um, it's it's primordial. It, it it strikes us at a very animalistic level um, and a lot of people I think too whenever they have Bigfoot encounters you have this flight or fight response and I think that, that is because you're dealing with something that's very primal and very bestial and a part of our brain that we really don't use very much in the 21st century that's a very good point though my friend yeah, I thought it's a valid point to bring up because people always underestimate that bit of us they always say well modern man we don't need it but we still got it why do we need it then if we don't need it, why is it why why have we not involved it out of our genes? That's absolutely, that, that's a perfect way of, of putting it. I think that it's kind of like the appendix of the uh, of the of the brain. You know, it's a vestigial, but it's there for a reason. It reminds us, you know, that we, you know, once were, you know, quite primitive and, and we were at the mercy of nature. And I think that whenever you experience such a feeling, which I have experienced this feeling one time whenever I was out with my children and a, uh, a very heavy fog came down upon us. And I, I felt surely that there was something following us in the woods to the point that something actually threw a rock out of the fog uh, at, uh, at my, myself and my children. But I had that very strong instinct that, you know, we should not be here and it's time to flee the area. Um, and, and I do know what you're talking about, this ancient part of the brain that you don't use. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that is... If, if it strikes you and if you feel it rising and speaking to you, you better listen. I presume you've got the um, same as what we have in the UK, like ley lines. I wish that we had the culture of ley lines over here in America. Uh, some people pay a credence. I definitely 100% do. But we do not have the maps that you have. I mean, you can go into antiquity and find ley line maps of Great Britain, but we do not have them here. So we can guesstimate where they may be or they may not be. Um, I would love to see uh, a study done or research done where we can we, we kind of like laid out over the world and find out these great connections. But, you know, in, 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 in the British Isles, you know, you can walk a ley line and just simply go from church to church to sacred ancient site. It's a very interesting way that it's done over in England. But because we're such a new country and because we destroy so much of our ancient past, well, one of the reasons why we destroy it is because it's not ours. It was somebody else's and we conquered them so they're no good to us anymore. That's a very American way of looking at things. Um, we have lost so much information uh, because of our uh, manifest destiny, which was part of the American way of life, that we really have, you know, lost our connection with not only the past, but with other cultures from around the world. Well, the Indians were the first conservationists, weren't they? That's right. Um, yeah, you would look like, uh, of course, there are a great deal of tribes that we're talking about. Um, and whenever you go into the area of South America, where there was a lot of, you know, um, ritual attached to um, to cults of the de of death, like the Aztec and the Maya, uh, and even the Inca, um, that, that the gods demanded human sacrifice and the bloodier the better. Um 
Not so much, but if you would go into the area of the Pacific Northwest, you find, you know, almost very similar. Uh, there was Chief, Chief Seattle, and his writings are very, very similar to what I feel uh, would be um, uh, very um, Franciscan. Uh, they, they remind me very much of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, that we have to be our brother's keeper, that we have to uh, be the stewards of the land. You know, we're only borrowing it from the future. But absolutely, the idea that this world is something to be shared and it's something to be sacred, you know, to, to look to view the sacred, is something that is predominantly among most Native American cultures. Now, getting back to the idea of Bigfoot, um, that creature also was seen as a spiritual animal in many of these cultures as well, and also a caretaking figure. So, I mean, if we're going to tie everything together, I think that's very pertinent. Now, whenever we go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, we also see, even though that was written about 5,000 years ago, over 5,000 years ago, we see the idea of these kind of, you know, Bigfoot-like creatures also being guardians of the sacred glens uh, and the sacred forests. Um, and I think there's something to be said about that. It's encroachment into these areas by man that really brings the beast out. And it's very sad because even when you look at the Bigfoot encounters here uh, in the Pacific Northwest back in the 1950s and 60s, that is only we, – we get the name Bigfoot because that's what um, uh, a bulldozer operator and lumberers had named it because they found the tracks. But we, we have these encounters because we go into their land and we start tearing it up, which is – you know, a very sad situation. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you say earlier that you said he was into paranormal as well? Uh, I'm sorry, my friend, what was that you said about the paranormal? Yeah, did you say earlier that he was into paranormal as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I've written a book on ghosts, which is a historical survey of ghosts. Um, and I, I truly um, have, uh, of all the unexplained things out there, uh, ghosts are one of those things that I am undeniably positive exists. So it's not really a question or a matter of me trying to prove that they're out there. I know quite well that they're out there. You know, I've had what you would call a ghostly encounter. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if you ever had. Yes, I, I have. You yes. do have. Yep. I have had a paranormal experience. It to be a very positive encounter for me. It dealt with my uh, deceased grandmother. Um, and a lot of people can say that these are fantasy fulfillments. It's my mind, you know, telling me that everything is okay. But unless you really experience it, uh, you know, any naysayer, there's no way to to um, really counteract that and just kind of shrug it off and let them believe if they want to because I know the experience that I had was very real and very visceral. Um, but I wrote a book on ghosts, and I find that whenever you're dealing with this phenomenon, this subject, it is such a vast, you know, undertaking. Because every culture around the world has the idea of ghosts and uh, the idea of whether you know it's it's something from. Uh, well, let, let me try to to. Um, put this plainly, although it's a difficult task to explain a ghost. Some cultures believe that it's the, the soul of the departed. Um, other people, other cultures believe that a ghost might be a manifestation of some other kind of, of nature type of deity like the jinn in some, uh, in some cultures. Um, but whenever you're dealing with a ghost, it's really not 
cut and dry, isn't it? That's one of those things where, as as old as the idea of the of the ghost is, we really don't know how it's made up, and we're still wrestling with that. So whenever you hear that thing go bump in the night, your mind is wondering what is going on. Well, my my experience in the paranormal is a bit bit more dramatic. I was in a coma some years ago. Because I had a blood sugar one two four, I went straight from ED to ICU, and at the time my wife was told that I was going to die. Obviously, I didn't. But um, when I was in the coma, I heard a woman's voice I'd not heard before or since, telling me to wake up, and I had the most overwhelming feeling ever to wake up. Now I seriously do believe it was my guardian angel or spirit guide, whichever you want terminology you would like to use and I yes like you said about people come back and say yes but it was your brain releasing chemicals I said well no I'm sorry I I know for a fact that when I was in my coma I was neither in the real world or the next world yes yes Unless somebody has that experience, my friend, there's no really way to um, try to convince somebody. Um, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about. My, I, I lost my grandmother. Um, she was wheelchair-bound the later years of her life. And, um, I, you know, I was very close to my grandmother. And, and, and one day, um, I was in my bed. And she came uh, into my room and, you know, no longer in a wheelchair, you know, completely bathed in light. And um, she said, you know, you have no worries. Um, death is just walking from one room into another. And she was gone. Now, she didn't disappear or anything, you know, melodramatic like that. She simply became part of the light. And uh, what was interesting is I do not remember waking up, I don't remember anything like that, but I found myself sitting up in my bed, staring out the window as the sun was coming in. So it was one of these things that I can just assure you that it was very real. I knew that she was there in the room. It was not my mind playing tricks on me, nor were I, nor was I sleeping. You know, it was something systemic. It affected the entire being of who I am. And, and, and I think, I think that one, one subject that science may come around to, and acknowledging, and that is the idea of. Of ghosts, I, I truly do. I think that there is so much evidence out there, and we talk about equipment being used. We're actually using measurable equipment right now, and if we talk about the scientific method, uh, there is a lot of data being collected, and a lot of a, a lot of events that are occurring over and over again that become observable. I think that mainstream science may come around to accepting the a possibility that, you know, life after death uh, does uh, does occur. Well, yeah, I, I seriously... I mean, what, what baffles me is that we don't talk about death as much as we used to, but back in the Victorian times, uh, over here in Britain, it was... Um, embellished, it was enjoyed, it was part of the culture. 
it was for it was it was the same way when I was growing up as well too. Uh, the idea of uh, theosophy. You know, that was a very Victorian thing, uh, and it really made its, its claim over here in the United States. I mean, it, it, it was big, but, you know, it did venture over to, the, uh, to, to England as well, too. But um, that we are here for a limited time, that we have to make the most of this time here on Earth, and that doesn't mean to be Epicurean and just enjoy ourselves, but it actually means to help our fellow man. Uh, and then we move on to another realm of being. I think that's something that we all should really sit back and ponder. Uh, the uh, uh, you know uh, the idea that that death comes to us all is something that probably should be you know from a philosophical point of view um, speculated on much more than it is right now because you know nobody wants to die. Uh, this world is filled up with the uh, you know electronics. Uh, we live in a microwave culture where everything happens instantaneously. So death is always a long way off. Um, but you know. It is something that I think that we should at least uh, uh, think about every now and then because it really grounds us, you know, uh, who we are and what our responsibility is uh, to the world around us. Well, I'm a great believer that in the future they'll probably find a way of death by putting us on a digital um, plane somewhere and we'll come back in that way. You know what? I, I think, yeah, to take take the thoughts of, of, of who we are and somehow translate them into, well, they're already electronic waves and they just find a way to, to capture them. Um, yeah, that could happen. But uh, and I think it probably has happened probably to some extent somewhere. But um, I also that's very sad to think about a person that could live forever as a part of a computer or part of a mainframe and never go beyond that you know hopefully the soul does go on and hopefully whenever we have shuffled off this mortal coil that you know that that part of us that seeks the 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 uh, the connection with the divine does indeed leave us and that science can get their grubby little fingers off of us and maybe just keep a few thoughts laying around rather than the essence of who we are now i've i've been told and i don't know how much this is true and you may have heard of this before yourself that when they do um, autopsies, there's always a 20 gram difference in the body that they can't explain. Yeah, as, as if the soul, uh, you know, had left. That's right. And I've heard that. I, I've actually been reading reports of that since the 1970s. Very, very interesting as well. And I mean, we have all these great photographs of what looks like, you know, the soul leaving, you know, some sort of ethereal cloud leaving us and everything. Because we want that reassurance. Um, but I think that if you would allow yourself to be open-minded, I think that everybody out there probably has had some sort of ghostly encounter in their life. But they would have to really admit it and accept it uh, rather than um, scoffing at it. So I think that everybody has had this, this, this encounter with, with the beyond. Uh, they just have to admit it to themselves. Yeah, I've talked to quite a few mediums. And um, despite what the um, opinions of some people think of mediums, um, they are very intelligent and they do admit, most of them say it's not an exact science. They don't just... Like a phone call, say, Hi, hello, I'm talking to John today. You know. <laughs> That's right. 
that's right. Um, in my line of work, uh, as a paranormal uh, researcher, I too have had to deal with uh, mediums and and, and, and and paranormal experts and you know sensitives or whatever you call them. And I have no uh, sensitive uh, feelings of my own, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I, I spoke to some that have been so unbelievably precise that I've broken down in tears. And uh, so, I mean, I mean it, it, what do you make of that? I, I think that there are humans out there that have, have the capability of tapping in to some sort of, whenever you talk about a mainframe, this, this, is, this is very appropriate. Whenever you talk about a mainframe, I think that human consciousness is also out there in some sort of, you know, electricity that certain people can tap into and download and possibly read snippets of the data. I, I truly believe that that is possible, and some people are sensitive enough to do such a thing. Well, you know and I know the American government and the Russian government and probably the British government did a research into psychic abilities. That's right, that's right. Like a lot of money went in there, you know, whenever, during uh, World War II and during the Cold War, everything from remote viewing to telekinesis had been studied. And we're talking about like training people to do such a thing. Um, And a lot of people forget about this kind of stuff. Now, Whenever we deal with like the idea of Bigfoot, I'm very interested in um, infrasound, and we get a lot of our knowledge of infrasound from the military because there's such a military component to the thing. I think you Greta was a remote viewer, wasn't he? I, I believe that's the case. I, I think that is the case. I yeah, again, I think it's a latent power yet again from early man, because early man would be perceptive to the animals and the the nature and the environment around him and he could read it without knowing he was reading it right well i i think that there's something very um very logical to that statement um think about living connected to the land i mean even a subtle barometric pressure change would signal somebody to, you know, a storm coming. And I think that there is a part of us that can understand that. And I think if we go back far enough, even the idea of of recognizing the dead and having, you know, these these ceremonies for the dead, even the Neanderthal, you know, buried their dead with grave goods. I think there was a connection and uh, understanding that has been lost. I think that this ancient man brain, again, and then, you know, I, I hope you run with this because I think this is a fascinating area of study. Um, but uh, this ancient man brain did indeed have to connect with the world around it and possibly even to the world after it, into the afterlife, simply to remain alive. You know, think, you know we, we, we are, as a species, if we are completely naked, we, we have no claws, you know, our teeth are ineffective, uh, we can't run very fast, we're not very strong, you know, we don't have hair covering our bodies, so we, we rely on fire, um, you know, we have to communicate to one another in order to get the job done, we're not a very good species, um, but there's something keeping us here, and I truly think that there's a lot to be said for this uh, some sort of connection with something that we are no longer aware of. Uh, yeah, I've had that idea for a few while at a time, and I'm, I'm glad I've talked to you today, because I might 
put it out there so you know what other people think as well I think that would be great. I, you know, I would love to come back on and do a show if we can get enough people that have an interest in this. I think a show dealing with, um, you know, this ancient mindset. Um, I think that it would be extremely interesting. I think it would be very, very. Um, um, good to add to the repertoire whenever we talk about the paranormal. And as you say, you've got people, uh, they always say, oh, ancient man was stupid, he didn't know this and didn't know But the trouble is, we always relate intelligence to what, who we are now. Mm-hmm. Not, right. See, intelligence back then would mean something different. You know? Oh, it, 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 that's right. Um, we would survive out in the in the Pleistocene for maybe maybe you know uh, half a day, probably until dark, until something would come out of the shadows and kill us. Um, but the intelligence that early man needed to fight against you know the the short faced bear. Um, when we talk about the saber tooth tiger, I mean, there's all these different creatures out there, all these predator predators out there. Uh, even you know, there's fossil remains of, of people being preyed upon by giant eagles and other types of birds of prey. Um, this was a very dangerous place where we were being attacked from above and below. You know, not a good place for uh, we hairy apes to grow up in. Um, but you know, we we did survive. And and how do we go? about surviving there had to be an intelligence out there that was keeping us going and intelligence probably has been almost atrophied and gone from who we are but something that kept us alive as a human species a human race to make us the leaders of this planet in a very short time period well it is very short compared to what they say the clock of evolution that's right that's I think right. Men, we've, yeah. we've only been on a planet like Two seconds in, in evolution terms. Yeah, it's something like that. I mean, to put things in perspective, um, we've only been modern for maybe two hundred thousand years. I mean, you know, modern man has only been around for that. You know, and I've read studies that our brain could maybe be traced back to fifty thousand years ago, but now there's you know more evidence saying that you know it might be closer to four hundred thousand years ago. Whatever the fact is, we are the new kids of the block. You know, no matter if we go back a half a million years to you know fifty thousand years ago. We're the new kids on the block, and we were able to change this world uh, and reshape it into our own image. Uh, we did things that nobody else has ever been able to do. Um, I also uh, like it, you know, to the pyramids too. If you think about this, um, you know, our really our first great attempt at. at, at building something when we think of the pyramids it's something that would be very difficult for us to do to this day to put things into perspective uh, the great pyramid of Cheops is I think 480 feet tall that was the highest structure on the planet until the Eiffel Tower was built so I mean we were capable of doing things that have been lost or forgotten or whatever but you know as a species we if you were looking at it on the clock, it would be like we were able to manage the harnessing of fire one day, and the very next day we were building pyramids. It's funny that without the discovery of fire, whichever way we found it, without that one single part of our history as human beings, we wouldn't be here today. That's right. 
That's right. So the Greeks, you know, said that it had to be stolen from, you know, stolen fire from the sun uh, by Prometheus. You know, this is the only way it could be explained. It had to be a cultural gift from the gods. Um you know, it is, it is that it is that turning point uh, in, in in our human evolution where we're able to you know cook our meat, and meat then gives us power to uh, to, to to keep our brains going. So uh, you know, maybe it indeed is a gift of the gods. Well, in past it was somebody just accidentally some what well, was going along one day, lightning struck something, and it, this suddenly this heat was developed. I thought about that as well, too, but that doesn't explain the idea of, you know, uh, the friction method, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the bow method and things like that. I'm sure that the first case of fire was something very, very accidental. But, you know, walking through the woods and looking at two sticks and saying, I bet if I rub those things together, I can start a fire. That is, you know, fundamental change in the way. Uh, thinking occurs, you know, we're talking about cause and effect at this point, um, and then to go a few steps even further, walking through the woods and thinking, hey, I wonder if this material that's sticking out of this rock, this bronze-colored stuff, I wonder if I could somehow extract that and melt it down and make things of it. I mean, these are fundamental ways in which we as a species have, have changed the world around us. But how does one get to that point? How does one look at the environment and say, I can use this, I can use that? That's not an intelligence you're talking about, this ancient man brain that you're talking about. Because you are gathering everything out of the environment to use. But, you know, to think about the first person that did that, you know, it, it boggles the mind. It'd be nice to meet them, wouldn't it? If it, it, it we, would. Have them as a guest on the podcast and say, Hi, how did you come about making fire? <laughs> I'm sure it was probably to impress a female. That's usually what happens. Yeah. Or the other way around, a female discovered it and a male nicked it. Yeah, that's a good point, too. We, we often, you know, we, well, of course we call mankind mankind, but that's a good point, too, because it's very possible that a woman, especially in a hunter-gatherer culture, may have been the one to uh, harness fire for the first time. Very, very possible. Well, you look at... I, I saw a story once on uh, Channel 4 over here about um, female disciples of Jesus. Yes. <laughs> it's odd because... Um, you're actually uh, hitting on a lot of different uh, points uh, that I really have a passion for. Um, I was a re religious, religious study minor in, in college, and I thought about the priesthood for a while. Um, so another area that I am extremely interested in is the uh, formation of Christianity uh, within the, uh, the a very you know ancient culture where we're talking about Judaism and Mithraism and things like that all developing. But um, whenever we think about... Uh, uh, the disciples, we'd automatically think, you know, of twelve. But if you know, if we if we analyze the Bible and look, you know, in, in, the, in the Book of Acts uh, during the uh, the Pentecost, you know, there's a hundred and seventy disciples there. Now these are are unnamed people, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly, many of them are women. Um, and so we we automatically think that the spread of Christianity was done as a sort of man's club, a boys club, and there was no women allowed. You know, there was a sign on the door that said "keep out." But women played a pivotal a pivotal role in 
in the spread of Christianity. And without women, uh, that, that religion would have died out. I believe that strongly. I believe it, you know, I, I can I can point out areas in history. Um, and we talk about the, the Celtic Church. Women, you know, of course, this is, uh, you know, 600, 700 years after the death of Christ. But we're talking about women who are, you know, as leaders in the church, bishops in the church. Um, and it's not until Christianity becomes this conquering religion that we find a very male-dominated um, hierarchy involved. Uh, so, you know, think of the first images of, of Jesus. Uh, we find them in the catacombs during the era, era of persecution. And it's, it's, it's the Christ figure who is without a beard, you know, a very, very, sometimes even feminine-looking character. He is the good shepherd. He has a, a, a sheep over his shoulder. He's leading his flock. He's, he's taking care of his wayward sheep. Um, it is not until the time, right around the time of, uh, of Justinian, over there in the Eastern, uh, Eastern Orthodox, that we find Christ becoming king, a very stern king, a very unforgiving king. And it's a shame that that sea change had happened. And it really uh, relates directly to how uh, the human race wanted to be identified, and of course, their God, of course, was on their side, and they would, uh, they would, you know, kill in the name of God, and all the things that Christ had talked uh, against now became part of this kind of unspoken gospel of war and treachery and and everything. And it's, it's very sad to see how Christianity had developed for the worse. But uh, absolutely, there was definitely women disciples. To get back to your point, well, there, had, there had to be because. Obviously, we know even with the culture of the the, the the places where they live now, now a man was not allowed to go and talk to a woman on a, on his own. It was not the done thing. That's right. That's absolutely the case. So, so I think that whenever we talk about Mary Magdalene and and, and Mary the mother of Jesus, I mean, if, if you even look at the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, the only people that were around him were women. You know, that's the only people that had, had, did not abandon him. Or, you know, so, sometimes we see uh, Saint John the Evangelist at the foot of the cross. But for the mostly, it was women who stayed by Christ. And I'm sure there was women that helped finance his ministry and really took care of all the all the things, you know, pre preparing food and things. And, and, and the idea of the unsung woman as part of creating Christianity has really been overlooked because, of course, you know, only pre, you know, only men can become priests, and, you know, women are to be seen and not heard. Uh, but I think that's kind of changing as well, too. And I think it needs to change to reflect uh, what the true, what the true Christian message is all about. Well, I did RE at school, and when the, the uh, teacher used to do about RE, he, he did very good way. He, he said, like, the um, Christ rising from the dead. He used that as an example. When he said he did both versions, he said, well, perhaps he didn't actually rise from the dead. Perhaps he was in a coma. Yeah, back then, the, perce the perception of a coma wouldn't be known. You know. That's oh yes, and I've heard of this as well too. You know that he he, he kind of swooned and was put into the grave, uh, and he wasn't quite dead. Yes, I've heard that story as well too. I I, I honestly believe the trouble is with like any Bible, any book, including the Bible, every story gets told. Someone might exaggerate it a little bit. I don't mean it's completely exaggerated. I don't mean it that in a disrespectful way. 
But you know what I mean. If you go to catch a fish, you don't going to say, oh, I only caught a fish that was three inches long. You're going to exaggerate a little bit. Oh, I caught a six-foot trout. That's right. You know, that's, that's right. what I mean. I don't mean it like, you know. No, no, I, I do know exactly what you mean. And, and, I, and I've talked to people regarding this, uh, this idea as well, too. Um, the problem with that is not, um, not a, a problem or an argument against Christianity. It's an argument against the, uh, uh, the, the Roman system of, of execution. And it's very hard to argue against the Roman uh, system of execution because there were people uh, who were trained to be exact mortis, you know, the givers of death. And um, it was their job, to, that was their only job, uh, to crucify people and make sure that they died up there, you know. And uh, so I think that when we talk about Jesus somehow falling into a coma and being able to be revived later, that is more of an indictment against the Romans than it is against Christianity. I think they did a pretty good job with that, about how, how that they went about uh, killing somebody. Romans? What did the Romans ever do for us? Uh, the, what, did the, what did the Romans ever do to us? Yeah, Monty Python. Do you remember Monty Python? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I do, I do. I remember that very much. That was actually quite funny. I remember that. Um, I remember, well, what was the song they were singing whenever they were, uh, we were up there? Oh, my goodness, I forget. Yeah, but they actually had this little kind of choreographed uh, uh, kick routine at the end. Yes, oh, my goodness. It's been oh, years talking since the I've seen life, yeah. Look, yeah, on the bright side of life. Yes, there you go, there you go. Boy, I'll tell you what, you are the... This radio show has covered absolutely everything. I give you kudos to this. Oh, oh my brain goes everywhere. I, I, I see a subject and I, I I try to keep my... I do too have little questions in my head, but I try to keep it free-flowing. <laughs> because I, I, I think I have a better conversation if I don't get too rigid. Because... You've probably heard so many people asking the same questions, like God knows how many times before, that you sort of automatically pilot it, you know. That's, that's right. It becomes very boring. Um, so, as I've said before, I, I host two radio programs on the Paranormal UK radio network. One, of course, was Deborah Hatswell, which is uh, the crypto realm, which is a, a weekly show. And she is such, not only is she a lovely, genuine lady, she actually has such expertise on the, the, the theories of, of what could be lurking out there. So I'm very, very indebted to her. Uh, but I have another program on the, on the same network called uh, Inside the Goblin Universe. And I try to cover as many things as well, too. So I'll tell you what I would do. I would love to have you on my show, and then we could discuss these things. My show's all, all, only an hour as well. So we'll discuss these things at length, and we'll become good friends, and we'll talk about esoteric things all the time. And, and I hope a lot of people listen and get enjoyment out of it. Well, I do as well, because... As I say, you've got to be open. Yes, be cynical. There's nothing wrong with being a cynic. We all have to be. You have to be a little bit of a cynic. Because otherwise... That's right. must. If you totally believe in anything, you're not going to accept anything else. Like, as you know, and Deborah will probably tell you, British Bigfoot is such a controversial subject. At one time, it was almost getting to the stage it was getting very, very personal, very, very, very nasty. Well, I've lost a lot of friends in the world of the paranormal 
um, over people jockeying for position, uh, trying to get one up on you, uh, riding coattails. Uh, I, I could count at least 20 friends that I've lost over the course of three or four years. Um, I have some genuine friends in this field, uh, but for the most part, people are trying to get ahead. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate. Um, but I, I am cynical. Uh, but I, I think I'm, I'm open-mindedly cynical. I'm, I'm wary, but I have not put up so many walls that I will not let somebody in. I think that's the way to be. You have to be very, very rigid nowadays, uh, and, but, but I'm not going to be – I'm a people person, so there's no way that I'm going to be such a, uh, a misanthrope that I'm not going to allow people still into my life. Well, I always tell people – when they say oh, about anything, I say, well, look, you look at it this way. We all born, we all live the middle bit, and we all die. So it makes us completely all equal. No matter what creed, religion, pink, pink, purple, grey, black, blue. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think <laughs> one of the most silly uh, types of, uh, of things that can even be in existence in the 21st century uh, is the idea of racism. That's something that should have probably died out 150 years ago. Um, but people still are, and you know, people are still raising their children to be racist and uh, xenophobic and everything else. That's something that truly needs to go away. And, and the only trouble with racism also is because the way we treated the slaves, the, the, the culture of being a slave is obviously still with people of... Um, Ethnic, re, re, ethnic origins, we put it politely, um, and it's still in their culture, and it hasn't gone away. And I can understand that because if you were taken away from your country, treated like basically like cattle, and then this story is passed on from generation to generation to generation, you're going to feel this way. That's right. That's right. Um, the the way I feel affinity towards towards uh, people of color, and um, you know the way that I, I view racism is this: uh, my family on both my father's side and my my mother's side, uh, they all came from Ireland, and you know I can show you newspaper uh, ads uh, from the late you know eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Yeah, 1900s, I know what you mean now. Says, yes, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, no blacks, yeah, no Irish. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what people don't understand. And the Ku Klux Klan burned crosses in Catholics' yards as well. My grandmother, who was, you know, a Catholic, uh, uh, you know, we were all raised Catholic, she remembers shuddering watching them as they climbed through her property to burn a cross up on the hill. She remembers that as a child. And, um, you know, so the idea of racism is just not a black and white issue. You know, I, I understood where it's like, you know, to be shown, you know, that, that, that illumination, that revelation that people were judging other people, not only on the color of their skin. So you could throw that right out the window. It was based upon, you know, uh, jobs, you know, kind of the thing that's going on in America right now. You know, they're coming to take our jobs. So now we're, we're xenophobic, you know, now we hate 
you know, this color and that color, but, you know, the Irish who are about as white as possibly can be, uh, we were discriminated against and, and, and lumped right in with, uh, with, with Africans, African-Americans from the very, very beginning. Also, um, I, I'll change the subject again. I, I do that a lot. Don't worry. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Um, um, I have a lot of conversations with people about political correctness and how it's it's slowly taking over the world. It's slowly making us more and more aware of how we talk to people. Not that we should be worried about how we talk to people, but we do. Say, for instance, you go down a park, you see the kids playing. As you do, you think, oh, great, that was me one day. But you don't want to hang around because people might you think that people might think you're some sort of perverted person. Obviously yes. you're not, but yes. you that feel is in your head, and I don't I defy anybody not to feel like that. That's right. That's and right. That's and right. Also, also, when you're talking to a coloured person, you think, oh, should I use the word black or should I use the word brown? Will I offend them? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that we try not to step on people's toes, and we're not doing it. You know, this is all inadvertent. This is all. This is all. You know, something that you said, that this is all created in our minds. Look, if we all looked at each other as part of the human race, that needs to be done. And again, I don't know why we're not doing that. Um, you know, I could take somebody out of, you know, sub-Saharan Africa right now, and my organs would go into them. They would be able to, to donate their blood to me. So no matter what anybody says, from a very biological point of view, we are all one and the same, regardless of what kind of, you know, uh, fallacies are out there being thrown about. And the only reasons, you know, black people have dark skin is the melanin, you know, and the idea of, of the sun and the environment. And if you will take a white person and stick them in a very, very bad environment, you can see what happens to the skin. It starts darkening very quickly. So the idea that we are racist based solely upon skin color is one of the most asinine ideas that has ever popped into the mind of humankind. Yeah, you reminded me of my, a story from my family. My great uncle was a bat, batman, which is like a butler, in the great in the Boer War. All right. And when he came back, my my great grand when she was alive said he came back blacker than a nigger sorry for the word yes but yes, that, yes, that, yes. that was the terminology back then i know it's offensive but i i but then it can be used as a word of endearment apparently in the that culture as well so <laughs> yeah yes, of course it just comes it's the bastardization of the of the of a word meaning black you know so i mean we're, we're talking about a word that you know a lot of people will say is a very cruel word and of course i don't use it nobody uses it uh, but you know it, it, it's just a it's just a, a, a bastardization of you know of another word so you know the white people that spread this kind of hatred weren't very smart to begin with. You know, we're not talking about the, the, the sharpest tools in the shed here. Uh, but we also have to keep in mind that this great country of America 
was built upon slavery, and you know Thomas Jefferson uh, owned slaves, even though he forbade uh, uh, slaves for coming into uh, uh, the country anymore. You know, he was still a proud slave owner. And if you would, if you go back in time and say, "Hey, hey, Thomas, I would like my slave to vote in the next election," he would laugh at you the same way he would laugh at you that say that you wanted your wife to vote. So we're talking about you know an evolution of understanding uh, and of, of who we are and who we aren't. But, uh, you know, America was built upon the idea of um, all men are created equal, that, that, that great part of the Declaration of Independence. Um, really, if you would sit down and decipher that, it was all white men who are property owners are created equal. You know, they were not talking about uh, the indentured servants. They were not talking about slaves. They were not talking about women. They were seriously talking about all wealthy, land-owning Protestant men. That's what they they were talking about. So, you know, unfortunately in our country, we have the, uh, the, the process of of adding amendments and things of that nature so we were able to catch catch up to speed but you know even now with Donald Trump and I don't I don't know what your you know what your political leadings are or our listeners political leadings are but whether you admire the man or you despise the man some of his rhetoric that he's putting out there is a very us versus them rhetoric oh. and it, yeah, it does not have any it should not be even spoken in today's world I'm glad you brought that about the rhetoric now I said this to a person the other day and I don't mean it in any disrespectful way to anybody else but his rhetoric reminds me of the rhetoric that Hitler used to say when he, in in the way he says things. The way, you understand yes. what I'm saying? You 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 know I'm not going the the far, you know, like kill people in a massive scale way, but the way he says things, the way he 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 says what people what he knows are thinking and are too scared to say, but he'll say it. Knowing feel well that there's people going, yeah, he's right, yeah. That's right, that's right. And what he does, you know, he is not addressing um, the intellectual. He could care less. He's not addressing the the college graduate or somebody like that. He's addressing people that are hurt by the economy. He's addressing people who are mostly very rural type of people, though this fervor is kind of spreading into the cities now, which I find very revolting. But um, he is basically targeting people that have been hurt by a recession and he's blaming outsiders on doing that to them. And this is, whenever you said about Hitler, look, unless you're a student of history, history will repeat itself. And sometimes you're a student of history and history will still repeat itself. Um, And that's what's going on right now. Now, I don't think that there would be death camps or anything of that nature, but I could foresee that there would be elimination stations, you know, around. And I think it's getting to that point right now when people are already being placed without being able to make a phone call, you know, in cages away from their children. Yeah, I've and seen I think that in the news. Yeah, it, that was, yep. it was disgusting. Yep. I was, it's, it's horrible. It's appalling. And what got me is when America walked out of the... Um, Something to do with the human rights people because they said it wasn't, they weren't, they were, why should they go to it because all of them are, they were, uh, they, they don't have human rights, some of the people that belong to it. 
But I thought, well, yes, that's right. I thought, well, no, yeah. yes, I agree. There's probably countries out there that, that but you're not going to change countries overnight. That's where people go wrong. That's right, that's right. And we have to understand, too, these people are fleeing, you know, regimes or they're fleeing situations. They're hoping to get to attain the American dream. That's more than some of our own citizens want to do, you know. Uh, these people are willing to take jobs that the citizens of this country won't do. Uh, whenever you think about them taking our jobs, um, they're taking jobs of picking, um, you know, vegetables in fields for, you know, 18-hour a day yeah. for $3. You know, that's yeah. the kind of job. We've got the same, taking, uh, we've got the same problem over here now with Brexit. Obviously, you've heard of Brexit. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yes. And, and we've got that theory. Oh, well, what are we going to do? There won't be no migrants coming over to pick our fruit. I thought, well, you should have realised that when you relied on them so much. You know that. That's right. Basically, as you said before, all the people that moan about the job people taking these jobs. Well, if it wasn't for the coloured nurses coming over at a certain time, the NHS wouldn't be around today. Absolutely right. So whenever you're, whenever people are starting to moan because their tomatoes are costing, uh, you know, three or four dollars a piece, because that's what you have to pay an American worker to, to pick them, uh, then you can say, you know, oh, maybe we should have let these immigrants in. Maybe we should have done this more. We should have done that. You know, it's as close of a thing that we have to um, adjunct um, slavery. You know that's that's acceptable to this very day. But most of these people are hardworking people who simply want to come on over here. Will take any job that they can. Will save up and they will make something of themselves because they have that drive. I think it's that. But when you think about it, seriously think about it, when the Americans should think about it, is that that was what the settlers were doing when they first came over to America. <laughs> That's absolutely the case. That's absolutely the case. Um, we came over. Uh, we, you know, the, the Native Americans, uh, in some instances, were very kind to us. And then, you know, of course, we, we killed them. But, um, but you know, there was, uh, at, at the onset, uh, there was, you know, some moments of peace. You know, look at our, our Thanksgiving in uh, 1621. Uh, so not all of it was all bad. Uh, but, you know, things caught on and we had a French and Indian War. And, you know, we started to spread smallpox around and, and all this kind of stuff. And we thought, well, we'll just eliminate these folks. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely, we were strangers in a strange land. And that's what happened. Yeah, so I think people should yeah, think a bit more deeply when they start criticising things. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. Yes, well, I, I cannot believe what we have talked about on this show. We, we have run the gamut. Oh, yes, I do run gamuts a lot. Now, would you like to give a link to any of your shows or anything you like, yeah, well, books or videos or uh, anything you do? <laughs> Ridge area around here, my own research. Uh, I've written um, 
I, I also have written a few mainstream things as well. I have a book of poetry out there if anybody would be so inclined. Um, but, you know, I try to stay busy. Um, you can listen to my shows. They're on um, paranormaluknetwork.com, uh, so you can go right there and listen to these uh, to these podcasts. And then you can go to uh, uh, ronaldmurphyjr.com, uh, and you can look up my um, – it would be my website. Oh, well, I've enjoyed our little chat, and uh, yes, I would like to go on your show. Uh, you you choose a subject, and I'll find the information about it, and I'll work things into it that people probably never heard of. There's one thing: <laughs> I, I, I look up, people, the Rat Man of South End. Look it up, <laughs> and I shall mention more of that when I'm on Ronald's show, because then you'll be more curious. I'm looking forward to it, my friend. This has been a blast. I've enjoyed every bit of it. Um, actually, my uh, my website is ronmurphyjr.com. So I said, Ronald Murphy, go to, let's just go to ronmurphyjr.com. So I'm glad I was able to clarify that. That's okay. Do you have been, please, people, please re listen to the podcast and you will notice that there was a slight error. That was due because the gremlins came into Ronald's head and made the, made the hamster. Not read his, read his brain properly. <laughs> oh, you're a hell of a man, my friend. You're a hell of a man. I'm looking forward to uh, to talking with you. I'll get talking with you in a couple of days. We'll uh, we'll schedule a date for you to come on to the uh, fascinating world of Inside the Goblin Universe. Thank you very much. Have a good day, good afternoon, or whatever it is you're in. And it's, it's, it's an early evening, so I will, and you too, my friend. Thank you very much for doing this for me. And I obviously I'll send you the download link and I will obviously put this on my other podcast link I use, which is Anchor FM, which is also on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts USA, and loads of other sites. I will share the heck out of it, my friend, as soon as I receive it. Thank you very much for doing this for me. Bye then.